it in, looking for Garza, backside and in for the first goal in Atlanta United history from Yamil Assad. Take a look at history. Hey y'all, Joe Patrick here, Dirty South Soccer, Five Stripe Final, I can't do Sam's intro. Anyway, uh, apologies for the deteriorated audio quality, though it's probably better than what you guys are expecting from this podcast. Uh, Had a really great opportunity this morning to interview John Strong and Stu Holden uh, from Fox Sports 1 ahead of Atlanta United's Eastern Conference Final against Toronto FC tonight. Uh, It was a wide-ranging conversation. We touched on a lot of topics, and so I hope you guys enjoy it, and let's just throw it right to the interview. John Strong, Stu Holden, thanks so much for taking the time out of your busy days. I know we're going to have a busy night here in, in just a little bit, but... Well, that's the funny thing, because we're doing this now, and yet people are going to be necessarily listening to it like a, you know, in a couple days or something like right, that. Right, so yeah, like, I know. There's that context of, like, what's actually happening. I hope happening we sound today? smart. Well, for, yeah. that, for that reason... I, I mean, who would have thought nine goals in the Eastern Conference Final? Incredible. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, let's hope. Yeah. Uh, for that reason, I think we'll talk about some other stuff that maybe isn't super pertinent to this game, but we'll talk about the game as well. Um, but first, I just wanted to kind of get your reactions of what happened last night. I think it was, you know, the result in uh, last night in LA the West final. Yeah, was yeah. kind of sent shockwaves around around MLS land. I yeah. mean, you thought Seattle had no chance, and you didn't think they belonged there at all. Really. <laughs> so I'll, we'll start with you. No, don't put words thought. in my mouth. Yeah, I, I would say for the Seattle team, I think we knew that they had talent. Uh, you know, their front line was devastating last night. The way that they were able in transition to play, and I think that Brian Schmetzer wanted this team to be a possession team in the final third. And what we've seen in the playoffs, in fact, and we've seen this over the past couple of years, is teams adjusting perhaps out of style or you know necessity to get results in the playoffs. And I think what they've done, they, they haven't led possession in all three games. Uh, against Dallas, they made it interesting. They came in you know a little bit unsure of themselves and what version of the Sounders they were going to be in the playoffs. And then I felt uh, in the second game, they were really impressive the way that they you know, played Salt Lake in the first half and the second half dominated and came into the game against LAFC. I think from the first 10 minutes, we were all watching it last night at the bar and just kind of saying, hey, Seattle's up for this. Mm-hmm. And the way that they were, you know, in the face of LAFC, they they were competing uh, man to a man across the field. I felt that they won all of the individual battles. And then I could signal out a couple of players that I really felt just dominated that game in the middle of the field, specifically Svensson, Svensson. and Roldan. Yeah. I mean, Svensson was everywhere. Christian Roldan is just a really good MLS player, a guy that, you know, will do all the dirty running, the dirty work. And I just felt, you know, I don't think there was a point last night where I said LAFC is going to win this. Yeah. And, and that's a credit to Seattle. They, they deserve that game. And they knocked off the best team we've ever seen in MLS in regular season, which was LAFC. At least until next year. Yeah. yeah. I, the thing that fascinates me with Seattle is they spent their first eight years as the big bad Seattle Sounders. Soccer was invented in the Pacific Northwest in 2009. Everyone sort of hated them and were jealous of them, culminating in winning MLS Cup in 2016. Well, then Atlantic comes in the league in 2017. Then LASC comes in, and Seattle sort of took a step step back last year. We all sort of forgot about them, and we were having conversations with, with people around the club in August and September. Where do the Seattle Sounders fit in the new ecosystem? Are they really going to keep up with the big spenders? And what happens when Inter-Miami come into the league, and they have this ownership transition, and there's all these big questions, and this big inflection point we were talking about with them, that even coming into the game with Dallas, if they lose that game, which was, what, a week and a half ago, that that might be a restructure, rebuild, blow it up moment. Mm-hmm. That they're now in MLS Cup for a third time in four years. Yeah. And how quickly that can change and the way that they have roared back to life. 
And from an LAFC standpoint, again, it's they've been, existed for two years. They've won the Supporters' Shield. They've broken records. They, they've put together certainly a team full of guys individually that had career years, and then Carlos Vela, who shattered all these records. You know, the idea that, that they would, in their second year, not have won MLS Cup yet is not a failure. Right. And yet, it's it's the, the viewpoint... Some of it is because of what they have been able to achieve. I think there's absolutely an element of the the marketing and promotional machine that has come up around LAFC. And I think they, in the way that Atlanta replaced Seattle, I think LAFC replaced Atlanta this year as the team that everyone around the league sort of was like, all right, calm down. And there was a little bit of dislike there. Yeah. Um, but I think because of the precedence that Atlanta yeah. set and won winning oh, yeah, cup totally. in their second year yeah, that yeah. I think the expectation for LAFC... The bar is very, very high. Yeah. So I'm more interested to see what, what, LA, what happens now with them. Can they... Similar to how Atlanta, you know, bombed out at home and then came back the next year and won MLS Cup and they have a chance to win it back to back. Can LAFC come back and stronger? But but it's really interesting the way you have this jockeying for position is sort of the, whereas it was the Galaxy for a while and then it was mm-hmm. sort of Seattle for a while and now you've got like a horse race of a couple of these teams. Yeah. And it comes down to a single game. It's yeah, great. Yeah, for sure. And you know it, there are some interesting parallels with Atlanta United because Atlanta United was the team that came in was doing kind of the things that LAFC did before LAFC did it. And what we saw last year in the playoffs was Tata Martino really get pragmatic and go to a back five, you know, and kind of change the way they played specifically to get those results in the playoffs. And Bob Bradley went out and tried to, you know, they went out and tried to play the way that they always did. Here's the question. They they didn't in the first game against the Galaxy. And in fact, that's what surprised me. And we, we, I mean, we were saying this a month before the playoffs. Will... The, the exactly what you said there has proved to be a recipe for success in the playoffs. Mm-hmm. And Bob, uh, this this new Bob Bradley, <laughs> I love the new Bob Bradley. Get lost. Uh, you know, so he, Bob. Yeah, it. it is. But but he has this idea of how the game should be played, and he has stuck to that the entire season. And I knew he wouldn't change coming in the playoffs. And that's why, in fact, I was a little surprised the way they approached the Galaxy game. And it was smart, and it was an effective and. In the game against Seattle, they looked to press again, and they got caught many times in transition. And I think it's a little bit naive for that team, and a team that was punched in the face early in that game. Uh, well, when, once they got up a goal, and yeah. then Rui Diaz, bang, Ladero, bang, going into halftime, and they just couldn't adjust. They, were, they couldn't play from behind at that point. Yeah. I think in they're saying feeling that, the pressure. If Atlanta does not lose in Toronto the final day last year, do they win MLS Cup? Mm-hmm. How much of them winning MLS Cup was a reaction to losing the Supporters' Shield? And as Tata told us, the straw that broke the camel's back. And they, we sometimes draw very big conclusions over very fine margins. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and and so that's where I tend to take a bigger picture view of, you know, if LAFC keep banging their head against the wall, okay, do they roar back to light? Like, that's the thing. And, and sometimes, you know, even Toronto, what was until... The last two years, Toronto 17 was the best team we'd ever seen, the best record. And if you look back at how many times they were an inch away from blowing all three of those things. Yeah. So sometimes, again, we draw very broad conclusions over things that end up being very narrow. And, and, and the narratives can change quickly. You know, like you talk about with the way that Atlanta United lost the Sporter Shield last year. I went back and listened to the audio of what, you know, of us going to training that in like a couple of days after that result. And Michael Parkhurst was saying, you know, we got we got to lock down. We can't make mistakes. Yeah. We have to perform Tonta better. Tonta just said that he was leaving. Yeah, yeah. He, that was days before they lost in Toronto. Almiron was coming off an injury, and we did the first leg at New York City. And it was like, what's going to happen here? Because, by the way, this New York City team sort of feels like they've got some momentum, and maybe they're ready to make a run. 
And in the, and it was that change, and they just locked him down. And then Eric Rometty, of all people, yeah. got the one goal, <laughs> right. and and then they crushed him at home. So uh, so yeah, it's the, you I, I enjoy that part of it as sort of not revisionist history, but going back and sort of yeah remembering how the pieces fell to get to that point. Right. The quote that struck me was he said uh, Parker said um, you know we have to perform better in big games and we haven't done that yet. Mm-hmm. And ever since then, it's all a laughable concept, done, right? Because yeah. now they are the ultimate <laughs> big game team. Right. Ever since then, they won MLS Cup. Campeones Cup, U.S. Open, all that stuff. So pretty interesting. Um, let's pivot, though, to Atlanta United. Kind of just generally what you guys are expecting of this game. I think people around here, people are so focused in on Atlanta. People know kind of what to expect from their own team, but they don't know how it's going to manifest itself when they against, you know, a visitor this, this coming in This is going to be a Toronto. great listen for everyone who doesn't listen to it until tomorrow morning. <laughs> right, <really> yeah. Nice. <laughs> yeah. But uh, if you had to guess how things are going to play out and how people uh, will be reacting when they listen to this after the result. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I think... Oh, not, if they lose, no one's listening. <laughs> yeah, that's true, yeah. No I chance. think not even <laughs> Atlanta United are 100% sure of, of what version of this team there is. I, I would I will say... Early in the season, there was a lot of pressure on Frank DeBoer. Uh, it's the unenviable task of taking over from the guy that won everything and was beloved here in Atlanta with Tata Martino and could barely put a foot wrong, and all the players loved him, and he was the fatherly figure. Uh, and Frank DeBoer took some time to really figure out what made this team tick and mm-hmm. what the right recipe was. And I think he's pretty open to the fact that he made some mistakes early with the team of uh, the way that he went about trying to make them more tactically uh, efficient in the way that they could transition in between different formations, but also making them better defensively. The team felt that they were no longer this attacking team, which mm-hmm. they were known as within the league. And I would say over time, I've been impressed with his ability to get results. I mean, the fact that they've won two finals already, uh, the fact that they were able to secure the second seed in the East. But yet, I still look at this team, and I'm not entirely convinced of what their best version is. And I think... It would be fair to say they they haven't played their best two games in the playoffs, but yet they've been both at home. They haven't conceded a goal. They've scored three goals, and they come into this now as the higher seed against a Toronto FC team that is a very good team. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I would say if you're listening to this tomorrow morning, <laughs> uh, look, Toronto is w- not expected to, uh, to be a pushover coming into this game. And, and this I think this is going to be a really big tactical battle, and I yeah. think that's what we'll see in two coaches being a little pragmatic at the beginning. It's going to mm-hmm. be kind of... Both, you know, almost like a heavyweight boxing fight where we're both boxers are feeling each other out early, taking little jabs, taking little jabs, seeing how the game unfolds. So I don't think we're going to see a goal in the first 15 minutes of this game and it, it'll start to, you know, pick up. But um, it, it seems like that's kind of the way Frank DeBoer's team goes, where it's like he's never going to the team is never going to look under him like the high flying four no. or five goal no scoring teams that yep. Tata Martino had. But at the same time, maybe they're they can be more consistent when they're. Yeah. under his you know optimal style I wanted to talk to you just generally about Frank DeBoer and his kind of arrival in the league um, because to me I think that more teams should be trying to allocate funds to bring in these big coaches I kind of wanted to get your take on on that and kind well, of yeah when, but is when, it the right big coach I mean that's part of it he's a big name um, and he's won titles in the Netherlands and he's well known but you could not have had a more diametrically opposed coaching personality philosophy style to go from Tata Martino to Frank mm-hmm. DeBoer and it's it depends you know if he wins MLS Cup then it vindicates the decision if they lose in the Eastern Conference final then the narrative will be well see he, I mean it, it, everything will ride on these two games potentially um 
So while I agree with that in general, I also, it's not necessarily, you know, and it's been proven time and time again, it's not the biggest name, it's the right name. Get right. a coach that fits what you're doing, and I don't think, I think the returns are still mixed. Um, and, and it's tough. I mean, as Stu alluded to, impossible job. It wasn't just that Tata was successful. He was so deeply loved mm-hmm. by yeah. these players. And and you're going to have a, again, that's part of why Frank DeBoer is such a departure, because his style is somewhat more removed. It's sort of continental Europe. It's I'm not there to be a father figure. Um, and so that's still an open question of whether it was actually the right choice or not, despite the success that they've had. And I think that's the thing is, you know, for some of these teams going forward, you're going to have more money to spend and you're going to have more interest. And it's easy to get the stars in your eyes of who you might be bringing in as player or coach. You still got to make sure you're picking the right one. Mm. Um, and, and it was a really curious choice. Again, whether it'll be vindicated or not, we'll find out in the next 10 days, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was for only changing two things from a title winning team, which was you changed, I, I hate using these terms, but you changed the number 10 and you changed the coach. You could not have changed two more significant things for how this yeah. club ticks. Yeah. And it has still, at the very least, a testament to the quality of this roster that they have achieved what they have achieved given the the massive foundational changes that have occurred in the last 12 months. And I think that's what's hard is, you know, have they had success because of yeah. Frank DeBoer or in spite of him and the fact that this is a talented roster? And I think... And clearly it's not just us. The players yeah, have been more than happy sure. to And while I don't think it has been smooth sailing, I don't think you expected it to be smooth sailing. I think, as John said, it could not have been more diametrically opposed to Tata Martino. I have a hard time of just completely removing credit from a coach and, you know, underestimating. I think we talked about that with Brian Schmetzer of, okay, you have this talented group. It still says something about the coach and the coaching staff to be able to pick the right pieces and make the right moves to get, you know, I, I, I've been on some good teams. I've been a part of teams with great players and coaches that kind of just let the players do their thing. But at the end of the day, there's still some key decisions and man management decisions that have to be made along the way. And, um, you know, Frank DeBoer, if he gets this team to an MLS Cup final, deserves a lot of credit f- for doing that. And at the very least, he deserves credit for not being more stubborn. Yeah. Had he early in yeah. the season held to his guns of the way he thought he was going to do it, it would have been a disaster. And he said that. There would have been mutiny. Yes, yeah. that he was smart yeah. enough to realize there are certain things I need to back down on. And there are certain things I need to let them just be, even though I disagree with it, I need to let that be what it is. And that, at the at the very, very, very minimum, that is what Frank DeBoer has done very well, is understand what buttons to push, what things to back off on, as opposed to being, whether he was like this at his other jobs or whether the circumstances were different, you know, holding his feet firm and drawing that line and, and losing the locker room, and it really mm-hmm. would have spun out of control. I think that's right, and I think that it shows that, you know, he's still growing as a mm-hmm. manager. I think people forget, because he's so famous, he had such a storied playing career, that he's still, you know, early, early and yeah, very inexperienced in his managerial old, career. He, especially he coaches the club that he grew up in. Yeah, and then two other jobs that that just fizzle out within a matter of weeks, really. Yeah. That then this is his first actual real long-term job that he's that he's held outside of this incubator where he's needed to adapt. Uh, well, yeah, exactly, and perhaps is been given the time to adapt yeah. mm-hmm. you know you don't get that time right. necessarily in europe and i would say mls is actually trending towards that where coaches are on a shorter lifespan but frank DeBoer, when he signed day one he said i like that i have the time it takes at least six months for me to get you know the team how i want and the culture in the locker room and 
he, I would say, has been given the time to adapt to the needs of the team, whereas perhaps if this was Europe or Inter Milan, where they're just like, okay, next. Now, yeah. Would that have been the right thing? Had you pulled the trigger on him after they lost at home to Dallas? Yeah. Would that really have been the right thing? That, that there's a balance, in, and he said that, there's a balance in between, yes, we want pressure and accountability, but but sometimes just blowing it up again six weeks later isn't necessarily, the, and, and so that I think is a good thing in, in the American soccer way is the fact that, no, we're going to let ride this out a little bit, mm-hmm. and, and it potentially, exactly, potentially ends up being vindicated to, you know, MLS Cup plus US Open Cup plus Champions Cup of Champions or whatever the hell it is. I guess to bring it back around, the reason I, I kind of asked the question is because I remember the day when he was announced or when I kind of knew he was going to be announced, and it was striking to me because what we were thinking and, you know, Myself and the group of writers at Very South Soccer, where we were thinking Argentine, you know, mm-hmm. uh, Argentine Superliga, you know, that kind of yeah. style of coach. And the appointment of DeBoer really struck me as like a tipping point where this club was making a decision to go in a certain way, which was to bring in these high names to help probably help recruit players. Um, and that's just the direction that this club is going as a brand, as its style on the field. So I find it interesting, and it's interesting what well, you say. Well, I was going to say, and, the, and the counter argument to that is because that higher than belies the culture you built in the first two years, mm-hmm. because you then are inherently changing a big part of that culture. So that's part of it. What is Atlanta United? What do they want to be? Is it a? Are you building a specific culture? built around a, a style or a philosophy of play? Is it just, we're going to be the big, bad Atlanta United and bring in the biggest names? like that? And that's where I think it's still an open jury. For all the success, the higher Frank DeBoer inherently says, we're actually not what we were. Mm-hmm. We're actually going to change what we were in our third year, whether it's successful or not. And that's the thing. So what does year four, five, and six look like? And what exactly is this club trying to be? Because yeah. getting the biggest name available is not necessarily a, a cultural style. Right. Yeah. Well, uh, let's pivot to the field. Cause I think there's, you know, a guy like Pitti Martinez is a guy who kind of similar, has a kind of a similar track to Frank DeBoer this year where, where he's mm-hmm. had his stops and starts. He was a big name coming in. What are your opinions of him? Cause I think, I think we have our opinions having watched him, you know, week in, week out, but probably from the outside on kind of this game tonight in MLS Cup. Yeah, potentially. yeah. probably does. I mean, you're probably right. He's he's the kind of guy who needs to make his bones and in, mm-hmm. in these. I, I mean, his storyline is interesting because the same thing has happened at the clubs that he's been at. River Plate. Mm-hmm. It was a very poor first year plus. He had his car stoned in the parking lot. He was struggling, and he took him a while to work in and to have success. And I think sometimes you're spoiled by the fact that you could not have hit it more out of the park with Al Miron and with Joseph Martinez and these guys. That it was insane off the jump, and so you're setting an unrealistic bar. And the fact that, again, it's Pete Martinez is a very different type of player. Mm-hmm. And clearly, Frank DeBoer has said it, you know, even his comment to us yesterday, Almiron was one of our best defensive players last year. And the number of times he said publicly, the issue he has with Pete is the amount of defending he's doing. So within that, South American player of the year, just won Copa Libertadores with River Plate. Well, what does that mean? What type of player is that actually? How does he fit right. to what you have? And, and there's still an opportunity for him to, to make a big moment, make a big impact, and we'll forget all the other stuff. But that's been it's been a fascinating season. Yeah, and I think the what, what you said there is fit to what you have. And it was interesting talking to Joseph Martinez, who 
could not speak more about his relationship with Almiron uh, and how that was his guy and that was his wingman and clearly they dealt on yeah his yeah. half person on and off the field right. yeah yeah, yeah. <clears throat> but then also a guy like Julian Gressel and then it was Nagby there was no mention of Pitti Martinez yeah. and <laughs> yeah. I, I think the style of play for Pitti Martinez you know, in how it complements the other pieces that they have, I don't think has gelled the way that they would have wanted. Mm-hmm. I think we've seen flashes. His t- talent is undeniable. I mean, you can see him, you know, when he when he connects. I mean, he, he strikes me of a guy, and kind of to John's point as well, of that, that needs time to settle and find his feet and his confidence. And he was just trying so hard. I remember the early games in the year. I think it was a game against Orlando. He finally mm-hmm. scored a wonderful goal with his left foot that he bent to the far post. But... He was shooting from long distance, and and I was hearing everything from guys within Atlanta like you should see this guy strike yeah. a ball in training. Yeah. He can hit it harder and better and more accurate than anyone. But it never translated to the game, and he he never felt like he was confident in himself, second getting guessing himself. He didn't look fit. Um, he couldn't keep up with the pace of play that they wanted to the play. Um, Frank DeBoer also that coincided with the ch- uh, change in style for this team and philosophy mm-hmm. and. So I would say we've seen flashes, we've seen ability, we've seen, you know, things that Atlanta United could get excited about, but we haven't seen a player that I'm willing to say is one of the best playmakers in the league yet. And yeah. I think, you know, second year will probably be the judge of that. But also if he can now lead his team through this game tonight and then to an MLS Cup, then the conversation instantly shifts to a guy that, you know, has come part of a team that's won two two trophies already. Because at the very least. Multiple times this year, the game we did against Orlando, there was a game here, it was an ESPN game, where he scored sort of a weird Yeah, he dunked goal. on somebody yeah. at DC, I think. And it was yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Pete yeah. he's here. Right. It's, we're fu- well, he's on the bench for the <laughs> yeah. opening playoff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And whatever you think about Frank DeBoer, if Frank DeBoer is going into a game and thinking, you know what, I don't need this guy on the field to win. Like, whatever he thinks of the player, if he knows that I need this guy in the field to win the game, he's going to be on the game. That is the story right there of what this first season has been. And so that's, again, it paints a broad picture. If, If Atlanta wins MLS Cup for a second straight year, everything is an unqualified success, and they've got every single thing right. But if you actually piece it together... There's a few little precarious moments, and, mm-hmm. and it really does the fine margins on, because you can imagine if Atlanta loses this game tonight, Frank DeBoer, P.T. Martinez, X, Y, and Z is going to be painted with a much more negative brush yeah. based on one game. Yeah, sure. And you know, kind of going back to uh, something we were talking about earlier, I think you know Frank DeBoer has been a departure from Tata Martino, and last year Tata Martino, he had his 11 Mm-hmm. Pretty much throughout the regular season, but definitely in the postseason, he just stuck with his squad. They were going to carry him. Frank DeBoer is going to chop and change based on the opponent, based on yeah. what he thinks is going to get the best out. And I think that's probably ruffled some feathers in the squad a bit. Um, you know, they're just players that, like uh, Pitti Martinez, is not expect. He's, he, he's not used to not being selected for those kinds of games. Mm-hmm. But I, you know, I credit Frank DeBoer for having the the guts to make that call and, and raise with that brings decision. Mikey Ambrose out from cryogenic freezing to start the playoff over. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. and, and it works. Yeah, for sure. Um, okay. I want to kind of pivot a little bit. Cause I want to talk. I also think there's kind of a similarity to Atlanta United with something that we've seen with the U S men's national team under Greg Berhalter in the way that Frank DeBoer has, you know, maybe he tried to tweak too much when he first came think Greg is starting to say some of those, uh, you know, trying to correct some of those overcorrections that he made when he came in. Kind of just wanted to get your thoughts on on the situation that the U.S. 
team By the way, potentially right how long? How long have we anyway, got here? I was gonna say <laughs> potentially still the only man to keep Atlanta United from winning an MLS Cup. Great, yeah, Walter, absolutely. What happens? And in the next it's 10 so days. it's so interesting because you know why the, does Miles Robinson got injured? <laughs> well, no, I meant <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's interesting because uh, you know the, the the Atlanta United fans that I interact with on a daily basis they love to you know just take the piss out of whoever you know. I, I think it, that's the soccer fans in yeah, general totally. that like to yeah totally. Um, but they obviously love Tata Martino, and Tata always said that he respected Greg Berhalter. Tata and Greg have a wonderful much relationship, and, yeah. I, and I've I've seen I've seen it sort of behind the curtain and away from the cameras. The mutual respect, the mutual admiration that that exists between those two, is very very genuine and very real, and it does add a fun dynamic to however long either is going to be there to to the U.S. Mexico thing. But it's very it's very legit between those two dudes. Yeah, he would always talk about him whenever yeah. whenever they played. He always kind of lauded his his managerial ability. Yeah. So it's well, yeah, speak about pressure though with Greg Berhalter, uh, a guy that took over a hot seat, I would say, with yeah. U.S. soccer and uh, was given was preaching time and you know bringing through this young generation. But I think as we've seen time go on and the games and the pressure ramp up a little bit for this team and I know you know say what you want about the Nations League what it has done uh has created an opportunity or a game in which the United States went on the road to Canada got completely outplayed and the noise that was kind of bubbling before and the the longer leash that Greg Berhalter had is is slowly starting to, mm-hmm. to shorten oh, actually no it's accelerating at a rapid pace <laughs> yeah. and it's going to be an, an interesting moment much like you said with Frank DeBoer and Atlanta United and Frank's ability to adapt mm-hmm. and and to not be so rigid and stuck in his ways and this is how our team's going to play Greg Berhalter in my mind and I've, I've said this many times now over the past month or so is that he has to change the way that this team is playing and the system and all of that because it, it's clear that the players aren't comfortable in that it's clear that this style does not fit the player pool that is available to maximize those abilities. And if you don't, and if you don't start getting results now, um, because at the end of the day, I know that you can talk about perception and changing the way American soccer is viewed globally. To do that, you have to win games. You can't lose to Canada for the first time in 34 years. And Canada have gotten a lot better. That that's you know that that is a fact. But the game now, and Greg Berhalter came out and has apologized to the U.S. fans for not going over, and he's laid a lot on this this next two now with Cuba, which you'd expect them mm-hmm. to to get a result in, and then Canada at home of kind of judging where this team is. And I tell you, if he doesn't get a result against Canada at home. <laughs> It may, it may be a little too soon, but it feels like his job could start to be under question. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's it's not good times right now for the U.S. men's national team. Yeah. It's, we haven't had anything exciting to cheer. Yeah, I mean, the, the stock answer I've given a lot is that Greg Berhalter is paying for the sins of others. Mm-hmm. It's not Greg Berhalter's fault that we have this lost generation of players that sort of that 2012 Olympics generation, mm-hmm. all of them just about fizzled professionally. It's not Greg Berhalter's fault we didn't qualify for the last World Cup. It's not Greg Berhalter's fault that, you know, we had this... I think there's a lot of revisionist history about the process that put Greg in the job, and I saw some writers that I respect throw that out after the Canada loss. Well, had we just made the hire a year earlier, which means Sunil Galati was making the hire unilaterally, that would not have gone over well. So mm-hmm. I think we forget a lot of those things that he inherited. Um, and there is also a part of it where it's up to the players. Style and tactics and all that, that was a lifeless team in Canada. That was a, that was a team full of players that weren't giving the level of... of fight and whatever you want to call it that we're used to seeing. And I, I do think it is a symptom of a larger trend of 
the the club game versus the international game and i can imagine the number of these players particularly the guys that are based in europe are probably because what do we see every time it's a fifa break oh it's the fifa break yep. oh i don't have premier league <laughs> this week oh what garbage is this and i guarantee you those players are getting that message from their clubs why are you going away mm-hmm. to play cuba we don't want so so there's a lot of these factors here that are leading to this idea of a time when it was the best thing you could have possibly done was play for the United States national team, regardless of opponent or circumstance, that now there's all this, yeah, what, you know, and, and, I, and I, that's not Greg yeah. Berhalter's fault. But to your point where I agree with you is you then have to adapt and realize that's a situation you're in. So how do you put your players in their individual situations, in the collective situation, in the best position to succeed? I would rather that we're Figuring some of this stuff out now, I, w- I would prefer to have the cratering moment in Toronto in October 2019 as opposed to yes. when the heck starts mm-hmm. next September. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and I also think inevitably when something like that happens, it's amplified by A, the, the pent-up anger that exists anyway, and B, inevitably via social media, people grandstanding and, and wanting to sort of make it about them. Bad, bad loss, but it... it these things take on a life of their own. And, is that the straw that breaks the camel's back? In, I, I uh, think I think Orlando you know? is. I, yeah. I think the next one with Orlando is you're going to need to see something big. And I I think for me I you know I was probably a ra- uh, reacted a little emotionally as well after that Canada loss because the four whiskeys while yes. you were watching the game. <laughs> no, but for many re- I, I was feeling in many uh, instances there because not covering the game as what a fan was feeling. Right. And I I think having been a part of those teams that John was talking about having represented the United States mm-hmm. uh, in big tournaments and just on many – I could not have been more honored or excited to be a part of that group. How many players have, have I heard that, that from? Yeah. Guys like yeah. you that have played Mo and, and other guys and you that hear, have worked but with you us. Hear, the difference is you hear it from some of the players, and they all talk yeah. about that. And I remember we sat down with Jordan Morris and Christian Roldan sh- uh, shortly after that loss. We did, were doing the Seattle yeah. game. And, and I think Jordan made a point of saying, like, everybody walks in and they're proud to wear, you know, the U.S. crest and represent it. But I think – in general, I think uh, you know being a part of that and and the honor of that and the the level of you know excellence. I think at times it's been because of that. You know, we talk about the year where many guys the transition year, not having a coach, and and also just coming off of the unique circumstance of not qualifying for the World Cup in such a long time that this program is in a position it hasn't found itself in so long and trying to now for Greg Berhalter to uh, what did how did you phrase it of um, feeling the sins of, of yeah, others, paying for, the sins, paying for the sins of others. I mean, he's got a huge job in front yeah. of him that I don't think people, many people realize. And so he, I think he's got to narrow his focus mm-hmm. and say, this is what I need to focus on now and mm-hmm. get this team back on track as opposed to trying to change the global perception right. and all these grandstand ideas, which I think is a pipe dream. And the most important thing right now is to, you know, get this team also feel like winning again. That's, you know, I the, mean, the, that's the thing is, you know, that's the thing that struck me at the end of that Canada game was the Canadian coaches sprinted out on the field and were jumping, you know, had players. Jumping and that's, into their by arms. the way, that's John Herdman's MO more yeah. than any other thing. He is a rah, rah. He's a motivator. He's an us against the world. He is in some ways the perfect coach for the scenario that Canada they need. Yeah. are in. He's mm-hmm. not going to be a tactical mastermind. He's not going to be, but he's going to get these guys and, jacked yes. up in, in a way. And again, yeah. that's, I think was a big part of it. The imbalance of, to those Canadian players, this is the biggest yeah. game we've ever played. Mm-hmm. This is our biggest opportunity ever for the American players. 
you know, it's Canada, it's the yeah. Nations League. And, it was and four again, days before they returned to their but is, club or But whatever, is that you know? messaging, though? I mean, it, yeah. to your point, you're absolutely it's right. A I mean, Canada came in sport, and we needed this. But the larger part of the yeah. sport, you were the part of the last generation, I think, where going off to play for your national team was the most important thing you could do as a soccer player. Are you really going to tell me that these guys that are based in these big clubs in Europe, and it's not just Americans, but do they really feel that anymore? Is that really the way the sport is viewed? Is the way the sport is marketed? Is that the way the sport is talked about? That going to play a nation, whether it's UEFA or CONCACAF, a Nations League game for your country, is more important than the club game on the weekend. And not to say that it directly consciously influences the effort and energy level but i do think it's a symptom overall that that the international game is suffering with right now mm-hmm. and so that ends up happening until that, the big turn yeah, yeah. Right. okay fine right. we lost to canada we got a playoff game this weekend we're playing whoever this weekend and i'll get on the plane and go home mm-hmm. as opposed to for those canadian guys that was that was everything yeah. so how do you how do you how do you make it that when they play canada again how do you make this American group of players feel, you know, this is the most important game I'm going to play the rest of the year? Yeah. I know it's a trope, but it's like finding that passion, you know, yeah. is I, it, that, that's, that's what a big feels. Part of it. And that's not, that's, that's not Greg Berhalter's fault. There's yeah. things that sure. he can be doing differently, perhaps. Um, and I, one of my favorite Alexiisms was trying to paint the Sistine Chapel with crayons. And it's, it's harsh and it's, and it's, you know, cartoonish in some ways, but it's it's there's there's a there's a high ambition level that is difficult for what the circumstances are. Mm-hmm. Can I do we have time for one more topic? I sure. just wanted to kind of just yeah. quickly. Katie, are you agreeing with what we're saying right now? <laughs> you're nodding your head. Katie, you're... with them, yeah, right. nodding along. Um, just one more. I just wanted to kind of quickly get your thoughts on the upcoming CBA and yeah. kind of just generally what needs to happen with the league in order for future growth. I feel like it's one of the under talked about talking points right now around MLS, the fact that this thing is is expiring in it's a difficult, 60 days it's a or something. It's a difficult dynamic because there's a couple pieces to it. Part of it is these are always phrased as players versus owners. I mm-hmm. think, and I thought this four years ago, five years ago, the last time. I think the far more interesting thing is owners versus owners. Yeah, I think that absolutely. is the crux of this CBA, far more than anything else, is, is the owners that, will yes, we'll do this, yes, we'll do that, and the owner saying, no, I will not. The other part of it is tough is is because in all the other parts of the year, we're all in this together, right? We're all one big happy family. We're all trying to push in the same direction to make MLS really make it. And, and incredibly, not just that so you're competing against other sports, you're competing against other soccer. I don't think people necessarily always understand the full context of the steep climb that MLS is facing. And yet when it comes CBA time, it's it's like scorched earth. I mean, and you remember the last negotiation, and you had a couple owners. Deloy Hansen was one of RSL. Um, there were comments, I think, from one or two other owners that came out publicly of just nastiness mm-hmm. and, and that scorched earth philosophy of these players, this. And it's like, so what happened there? And that's, that's my fear is if it becomes about ego, if it becomes about winning the CBA, can't – is that really what you want? Not just yeah. a, not just the idea of a work stoppage, but let's not forget, it was within 72 hours yeah. of the beginning of the season, and it was the beginning of the new TV contract, and we were going to do our big FS1 doubleheader of MLS, and we were on the Thursday, the day before, sitting there in L.A. doing the Algarve Cup, going, are we even getting on this plane to Seattle? Yeah. Is this going to happen? That That there's so much focus behind... Even just to begin the season well and to promote and 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 if we don't know if the season's gonna like, so part part of my plea, not that anyone involved in this is gonna be listening to this podcast, it's like guys, just see the bigger picture a little bit here. Mm-hmm. Just just 
be willing, everybody on both sides, but certainly the owners, just let's be smart about this. And I get it that, you know, it's not my money, it's your money, all these things, but like, let's just be smart here. And let's not make it about settling scores. Let's not make it about being able to say you won or you crushed this side or that, because there's a real opportunity here for the successful continued growth of MLS if done smartly. And there's a real opportunity to blow a big part of this up. And, and, and you can see what's happened in the NHL and you can see what's happened in baseball that they've had and what's happened in the NBA. They've had these work stoppages. And by the way, those were much further along mm -hmm. that they were able to absorb. But it took the NHL a long time to get back. And mm -hmm. that that is my my optimistic, naive hope is that we can maybe avoid some of that. But it, but it was it's been nasty and dicey the last two of these in particular. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, you took the words out of my mouth as far as the optimistic part. I said, that, that's a beautiful, you know, narrative. But in reality, it is it is going to be ugly at times, I'm sure. I'm sure it will come down to the last hour, as it always does in the CBA. Uh, I haven't actually heard a lot of what the players are, are fighting for. It's going to be the standard stuff, though. More money, mm -hmm. uh, better travel. Yep. Um, yeah, I think greater player movement uh, once again. So freer player movement mm -hmm. and more free agency and guaranteed contracts. I mean, you can kind of check the boxes on down. I think there is a feeling amongst the players and, and actually widespread at this point that the, flare, the players lost the last one and you know they win and lose badly yeah. but, and were completely taken to the cleaners and yep. you know so much so that the owners turned around then and the league I think a couple months Six later months and said later. hey we're going to have actually we're injecting more money <laughs> here, here comes yeah. into yeah, yeah. pizza uh, party for the employees we're going to yeah, give you like... more money except we're going to give it to all the other guys yes. we're not going to give you the money we're going to give the money to the new players coming yeah, yeah. I think there will be uh, a defense more a protection perhaps of the American player a little bit more um, but you know I, I don't know we'll see are there going to be fewer restrictions Restrictions. Is there just going to be a greater salary cap? I know for a fact, though, that the the uh, like John said, the bigger owners, the billionaires, the new owners, they want to push this league higher. Yeah. And to do that, it's, <clears throat> it's more investment. Mm -hmm. It's you know, it's freer investment. It's also the lower clubs pull your weight a little bit because I think some of the bigger teams and owners are are tired of pulling everybody up along with them and. It's going to be fascinating, honestly. Uh, of how, Will those how this voices one outweigh the yes. other voices? I mean, yeah. has has the has it reached the tipping point? As guys, you know, Cincinnati's um, uh, was it Carl or whatever his name is, the the Cincinnati owner who we met with earlier this year, incredibly <laughs> ambitious, mm -hmm. wants to spend, wants to do things the right way. Ambition in Miami, ambition in Nashville. Mm -hmm. and, and as these as these voices join the room, and it sort of, and we've even seen we've seen this year. The the and I, and I understand exactly why the the Kraft family bristles at the perception that they are the ones that are sort of holding it back. But but we've even seen a change with New England this year, and they've mm -hmm. used the jet, and they've signed. So you're starting to see that. Train but I, yeah. at the very very minimum, what I will say is this: we our season opener next year is going to be really really cool. Can't say yet what it is, but 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 what it's going to be to how we begin next season, yeah. the 25th season of MLS, our plans for it is going to be really really cool, and I'm super excited about it. More excited than I've been for any season opener in the seven years I've done as a national broadcaster. What I want is to be able to actually have a full runway to it. I don't want to be going because that's the problem. Because then it just loses all the momentum. Mm -hmm. As opposed to if the thing can get done and we can spend a week or two weeks banging the drum. For what that's going to be, it's going to be really, really cool, and that—that's what I would. Again, it's a very small, small piece of it, but that's my thing. Is, is I would, I would hate to have it be the same thing it was 
five years ago where it's like two days out. Yeah. Like, is this even going to go on the air or not? Yeah. Well, that's a good cliffhanger to leave it on. There you go. Beginning of next season. That's exciting. Um, Anything you guys needed to plug or anything for our widely distributed... uh... Follow Stu on Twitter. Follow Katie (laughs) on Twitter. Don't follow me on Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, John, Stu, thanks so much for taking the time to talk. And Katie, um, thank you for bringing them coffee to... Say something. Say something. You're so welcome. There you go. She's here. They don't call her the best sideline reporter that misses for nothing. All right. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it.